welcome, welcome. Week four of a series called Ancient Pathways. If you are not, if you've not been here, let me, you know, let me kind of bring you up to speed. We kicked off this series with one goal and it was to pursue personal revival in our lives. The Bible says in the book of Psalms to revive us three different times. And it starts with the idea of God revive me. Everybody say me. It always starts with you, you know, before it spills out, it has to start in one person in their heart, God doing a work in them. But then the next time it says revive us, everybody say us. Yeah, then it has a spillover effect because here's what I know. Men, let me explain this to you. Like when you, when you have revival in your life, it's going it's to affect your wife. It's going to affect your children. When, when it, when it's, ladies, when it's in your life, I guarantee you it will spill out into your entire home because God is just kind of giving you that thing. It, it just happens. I've seen it happen where kids have a personal revival and then it spills over, begins to affect and influence their children. It just has a spillover effect. Even into the lives of your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers. And then the, the last time the Bible says in the book of Psalms to revive, it says, revive thy work. And you see this progression of God starting with an individual, it's spilling over into a group and a community, and then it affecting the, the kingdom of God. And that's what we're pursuing, is as we look at the ancient pathways, we're saying, God, can you revive us again? Last week we talked about like reviving us in the realm of like healing. Like healing is a thing throughout the Bible and throughout Scripture, through the life of Jesus, throughout the life of the early apostles and throughout history during times of revival. God kind of revived the gift of healing. And so if you are not here last week, please go get a copy of that CD. I want to encourage you that God still heals today. Can I get an amen out there? I just believe he does. And so um, anyway, today we are going to go down a new pathway. Today I want to talk to you about a revival that is referred to as the layman's revival. How many of you have ever heard of this before? Okay, I didn't think so. It's, it's something that's happened back in the 1800s in America. And it may be, it may be the most influential revival that's ever happened in America when you look at the overall total results. And I cannot wait to share it with you today. So let's pray before we begin. Please bow your heads with me. Dear God, we, we pray, speak to us this morning. Let the scripture speak. Let our hearts be stirred. Let our faith be challenged. Lord God, let us walk out of this place different than the way we walked in, God. Do something in us today. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. We all said? So in 1857, in Manhattan, there's this little church on Fulton Street that's gone into just decline. If, you, if I had time to do a big history lesson which would bore you to tears, you would see that the nation over the last hundred years had gone into kind of decline. Economic decline, spiritual decline, moral decline. Decline is just decline, right? And so they had come to a point where they're looking at their church and attendance is down and things aren't good. And so the pastor has this idea. They're like, hey, you know what? Let's get a guy. Let's get somebody that can maybe like do... Some outreach, you know, some evangelism, something, something in the community. We need to get out beyond the four walls of the church. And so they hire this guy named Joseph Lanfear. I don't think they hired him. They just asked him to do this. He was a business guy working in Manhattan. They said, hey, we want you to do something. We don't know what it is, but we want you to do something in the community to kind of stir up people, to draw people back to church. What you, we, we put you in charge of that. And so Joseph has no theological training. He's not a preacher. He's a, he's a business guy. He looks around Manhattan, he prays and he thinks and he prays and he thinks. And, and he's like, God, I don't, I don't know what to do. And so, but he notices something. You know what people do every day? Right in the middle of their work day. You know what they do? They eat. That's important. They eat. They take a lunch break. And he goes, here's what I'm going to do. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm going to do a prayer meeting 
on my lunch break. And so he literally printed out 20,000 flyers and he spread them out all throughout Manhattan with one goal. I want to get as many people as I can to come to a Monday prayer meeting at lunchtime. And so 20,000 flyers all throughout the city. He shows up on the day of this meeting. I think it was October uh, 21st. I think it was. It was something like that. And, and he shows up in 20,000 flyers. You might know how many people showed up. Six. Six people showed up. That's a bad... ROI, isn't it right there? Um, you, you know, that, you're expecting a little bit better. Six people showed up, but bless God, he said, we got six people, let's pray. And, and they didn't know what they were doing. Again, these aren't pastors and preachers and theology people. These are just people, people. And so the, the six people were like, what do we do? Let's pray. What do we pray for? I don't know. What do you want to pray for? <laughs> and they literally were like, what are we going to pray for? And they came up with a list of two or three, four or five things they wanted to pray for. And they just sat there and prayed. And about five till one... They said, all right, it's time to leave. We've got to go back to work. Let's get back here next week at the same bat time, same bat channel. And, and, and we'll do this again next Monday and bring a friend. So sure enough, they, they had six people their very first week. The next week they had 30 people. I mean, that's awesome. Now you, have, you have more than doubled your attendance. You've tripled your attendance. And so 30 people show up. They do the same thing. They sit around at lunchtime. And you know what they do? They just pray. That's it. It was nothing magical. It was nothing special. The next week they show up and there's 40 people. And the, and the, and the meetings are just genuine. There's something heartfelt. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a group. You're like, man, there's just something good. There's, a, there's something right about that feeling. And you know what? So one of them spoke up and said, let's do this. Again. Can we do this every day? Like not just every week on Monday, but like, can we do this every day? And Joseph's like, sure, let's do it. Let's do it. We'll do it every day. And so sure enough. This thing moved to a daily prayer meeting and went from 40 people and expanded until eventually there were 3,000 people coming to this prayer group every day of the week during their lunch break. It got so big that the little church, it was like a Dutch reformed church that they were meeting in, they ran out of room. And so they literally went across the street to the YMCA and were filling up both the church and the YMCA. This thing just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and, and not only that, they started spreading. They ran out of room there. So they started spreading to every church in the neighborhood. And literally all the churches in Manhattan were being filled every day at lunch. This thing broke, broke open so wide. So many people were attending. It, it not only spread from Manhattan. This thing caught so much wind and so much fire. They started doing these because people, business people travel. So when you're doing business in New York and then you see, because like newspapers were doing articles about it. Businesses were shutting down. Businesses for lunchtime, which is weird because we think lunch is when people run out to do errands and get lunch. They were shutting their businesses down during lunch and they post a sign and said, be back at one o'clock after prayer meeting. That would be the sign in the window. And now here's a radical. Here's what people did. They stopped eating. To pray. They stopped eating so they could pray. Some of them would just grab a bite on the way and eat as they... And, and so literally these factories were shutting down five and ten minutes before noon so that their people could get to the, to the prayer meeting on time. And then, uh, you know, they would just cut out about five minutes till one. Everybody would race back to work. This thing spread to Philadelphia. So like in James Hall in Philadelphia, they were seeing 3,000 people a day. At the Metropolitan Theater in Chicago, they were seeing 3,000 people per day. This thing was so influential. And, and, and the size and the scope of it was so huge. They say that by the time this thing infected all of the all the different cities, that literally over a million people came to Christ with what started with the layman's prayer meeting. 
And here's what's fascinating. There's no denomination. There's no one particular brand of church. There was no pastor involved at all. It was the most amazing thing in the world. And you can tell this because it was so clean. It was so neat and easy. And they, they actually made up rules to the, uh, to the prayer meeting. You want to hear what the rules were? I got a list of the rules. This is how they would uh, function and facilitate the prayer meeting. Number one, you had to be on time. Like they were big on punctuality. Like you came on time or you just didn't come. That's it. We want you here on time. Um, the, the second thing is this, is that no one could preach or teach or say anything. You could stand up and pray and nothing else. You could not announce anything. You could not promote anything. You couldn't bring up any. If you brought up anything controversial, divisive, what? No, 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 shut up. Sit down. We don't care. We're here to pray. Like, what, what if we had that attitude? It wasn't about these questions and these ideas. And, well, well what about this? And, the, and No, 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 no. Let's just pray. That might be the most potent thing that we could just, just pray. Let's just seek God to do something amazing. And so, literally, and I, I've actually heard some of the prayer requests. What they would do is they would open up a meeting with a hymn and a scripture reading. And then, basically, when you showed up, if you had something to pray for, you would fill out a little prayer card right there on the spot. And then you would hand it in. The facilitator, who was always just kind of a lay person, would stand up and read the card. He would say something like, and I remember hearing some of so-and-so has a drunkard husband and he wants to pray that their soul would be saved. And they would always finish with who will pray. And then one person would just stand or raise their hand and stand up and they would begin to pray and everybody else would be silent. It was real interesting because they said, we don't want this to be an emotional thing. So there's no talking. It's all quiet. Unless you're the person praying, we want you to pray silently. We, we want this thing all about the power of prayer. And so they literally, they just had these rules. You had to leave at five minutes till one o'clock. And, and that was as simple as it got. They came in, hymn, scripture reading. They'd pray for about an hour. They'd close with a hymn and everybody went out and left. And this thing, the, and they say the thing that kind of ended up squashing out this revival was the Civil War. The Civil War is what kind of put it in because of all the craziness that started going on with that. But leading up to it for years and years and years, like when you look at what took place, like the reason why the YMCA took off is because of this revival. As a matter of fact, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole notion of sport was new back then. Like people didn't have sports. Like we have sports for everything. They didn't have sports for everything because of the urbanization and people moving to the city. You had all these teenagers and these boys and men and you had to give them something to do. They're like, y'all need to play a sport. And this is when they, if you, if you look historically, this is when they started making up stuff like, you know, throwing a ball through a peach basket with some really short shorts on. We'll call that basket ball. Um, th- this is when you see football. Say, well, why? Well, the YMCA had a huge part of that. Here, here's a thought like the D.L. Moody, the Moody Bible Institute took off because of this. Missionaries were sent because of this. All the mission organizations uh, that, that started sending people out to India and China and Africa, they all flowed out of this revival called the Layman's Prayer Revival. And that was what was so fascinating about it is it wasn't a preacher and it, it was it was hosted in some church buildings, but not always in church buildings. And it wasn't about a pastor, or a denomination or a special. It was purely about people praying. That was just something radical about it. Somebody it was it was a professor observed this. And his observation was, is that I don't think prayer is what precedes revival. He said, I think prayer is revival. When you can get a mass amount of people praying and seeking God like this, that is revival. Because people don't just want to pray. How many are like, hey, everybody, we're going to do a prayer meeting. How many of y'all want to sign up? 
Why? We can't get people to. He goes, prayer is the revival. The fact that you can get that many people praying together, that is revival that's taking place. And again, it was started with the simple thought of what can I do in the middle of my work day? How can I go out into the community? How can we not do a church thing, but actually get outside the four walls of a church and connect to people? These were all just business people. And through their jobs, this was the deal. They would just conversate. All the conversation turned towards Christ. And they started inviting all their coworkers and all their friends to come to this prayer meeting. And people just kept coming. Which leads us to this one thing that I want to talk about today, which is this. Is how do you get the kingdom to your job? How do you get the gospel outside of the four walls of this church? How do you carry what you believe in here and get it out of here? Because most of your life is out of here, isn't it? Like you're here Sunday morning from 10 to 1130-ish. Well, some of y'all are 1030-ish to 11. But, but we, need to talk, we need to set the punctuality rule, don't we? Um, so, so here's the deal. How do you get it out outside of here? Because that's where this revival took place. Did you know, I want you to listen to this. Did you know that you're going to spend 150,000 hours of your life at work? Yeah, some of y'all, all right, we need to talk to y'all. That, you know what that roughly means? About 40% of your life is working. Yeah, about 40. Which, which means this, is if we have a wrong attitude about work and why we work and the motive of our work, we are going to miss God's biggest opportunity for our life. Like, like it, it, it's, it's, the fact is that God has given you work, that God likes work. You're going to work in heaven. I don't know if you knew that or not. Like that everything you do here is in essence a big job interview for what you'll do in heaven. And, and you won't have bad bosses in heaven. It'll be meaningful work. It'll be all good. But like you're going to work in heaven. Like work doesn't cease. Does that make sense? God has designed you for work. It's good that you work. And what God wants to do is you to carry the gospel into your Work. Yeah, 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 work. See, that, that's what in essence the Great Commission was. When Jesus took all of his disciple folks and his Jesus followers, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the world and then make disciples in my name. Well, the, the, the concept of world was very, very small to them, and it's gotten a lot bigger to us. But in essence, it was, your, it was them always saying, you need to go into your world. Like, you got a world. And most of you have a world from nine to five. And 40% of your life will be spent doing something between the hours of 9 to 5. And it has largely to do with work. And I want you to go into that world. And I want you to take my name there. I want you to love people there. I want you to build the kingdom there. Are you with me today? Today, I want us to renew our mind about what the Bible says about us and our work. There are five main purposes that God has given you work. I want to work through those today because by the time I, you leave this place, I want you thinking differently about your job and about what you do and about your gifts and your talents and your abilities and why it is that you get up and go to work every day. Are you ready? Number one is this. The first purpose for work in the Bible is this. Bam, to meet my needs. You're like, wow, Todd, that's really deep. I know it is. How many of y'all got a, got, got a mortgage, you got a rent, you got an electric bill, you got a cell phone bill, you got a water bill, you got a grocery thing, you got, you got kids to feed, you, got, you have needs that need to be met. Listen to this, 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8 says this, if anyone does not work or provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
Now, depending on what translation you read, what you'll find is this, like, it's good to work. Paul said, if it, the old King James, you say it like this, if man don't work, you don't eat. Like, and literally, that's the way they thought about it, because they lived in small communities where literally you could, you could lay around. They would say, if you lay around, you ain't going to eat nothing. This was the idea that you needed to work. You, you work to meet your needs. Like, that's a good thing. That's a godly thing. God has designed you for work, and you have certain needs that need to be met. Now, notice God, he says this, for those who basically won't work. This isn't can't work. Because I've had people feel bad at times because they have disability or sickness or illness or they have needs that they have to tend to and it, it keeps them from being able to have a job. I don't want you to feel any condemnation whatsoever. I'm not talking about that. The Bible doesn't talk about those who can't work. It talks about those who won't. There's a won't work. And we, we, we have an epidemic in America because of the way that our government's kind of set up. It's like we actually encourage the idea of not working. And when other people don't work and we see them still getting, getting money for not working, we think, well, why am I working? And it spreads and gets into this negative mindset. No, work is good. And it's good to work. God's made you for work. And so, so the alternative would be is that you go too far on the other end. Like, and I've heard some people say, well, I've made so much money and I've got so, got so many things like I don't have to work anymore. I'd say that's not true either. You, you should still work. Like it, it is life giving to work. It is a good thing to work. And we'll get in, we'll get into why. Here, here's another thought behind this too, is sometimes people struggle with the idea of, of working for, for money. Do you know that God is not against prosperity? We have kind of two uh, extremes, two polar opposites when we come to uh, prosperity. And one of them is, is you have prosperity preachers say everybody ought to drive a Mercedes if you're going to follow Jesus, which is stupid. And then and then we have other people that say, well, God wants you to be poor. So you stay humble. And both of them are wrong. No, no. God wants to meet your needs and God wants you to to be provided for. But yeah, I mean, there's look, go, go read the Bible. What you'll find is many of the great men and women of the Bible were incredibly well. God's not opposed to wealth. God is opposed to selfishness. Does that make sense? God's not opposed to wealth. It's not a bad thing to have money. Don't ever think that way. Feel that. Don't ever feel bad. The question is, what do you do with the wealth that God's given you? But he's not against prosperity. He's against self-centeredness. He's not against having, he's against being greedy. And, 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 and making sure that we have a biblical worldview to say, you know, I, it is good to work. It is good to be able to meet my own needs and to provide for my own future, my own family. That is a good thing. Everybody say, all right. Number two is this, though. These are the, we're going to get to the deeper levels of why we work. Y'all knew we got to pay bills. Number two is this, is to express my talents. You're hardwired by your creator. You got certain genes and genetics. You got a certain personality temperament. You got natural abilities that you are born with. You have spiritual gifts. You, when you, you know, when you come to Jesus, there's some spiritual gifts in you that have been dormant. But when you come to Jesus, they become alive. And as you pursue them, you develop them. And God's given you these spiritual gifts, these, these abilities, these talents. These, these, God has given it all to you. And he wants you to use that. That's how you bring glory to God. Like some of you guys, some of you guys wow me with how smart you are. Some of you guys are like mechanical. And I love the mechanical dudes because they, they see the world differently. And like God didn't give me that way. Some of you are compassionate though. Some of you have incredible gifts of compassion. Like the things that you could do in a hospital or with hospice and loving people and helping people. Like I, 
I could, I could never do that. I, I mean, there's so many things that I can't. Some of you are gifted, whether it's, it's at musical things or whether it's math or with your words or whatever. Like God has blessed you. God has given you incredible talents. Now, listen to this. First Peter 4.10. Each of you has been blessed with one of God's many wonderful gifts to be used in the service of others. So use your gift well. Like God gave you talents and abilities. You need to express those. As a matter of fact, God, I think this, I think God cares really more about the meaning of your work than the money of your work. Does that make sense? Like, like meaning matters more than money. As a matter of fact, let me go so far as to say this. If you're in a job that you feel like lacks meaning and has no meaning, you need to pursue another job then. If you hate your job, loathe your job, detest your job, feel like there's an immoral tension with your job, quit your job. I'm not saying it doing do it foolishly, but like you may need to find a different job and occupation. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, but find meaning in your work and do it for the glory of God. Somebody say, all right. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul lives a life being a missionary. He builds tents on the side to make ends meet. But this is what he says at the end of his life. He goes, I finished the race. I fought the good fight. I've run my course. You know what he's saying? I actually did what I was put on this earth to do. Like that's that's an amazing feeling to know I'm right in the middle of my purpose that God's given me. You know, Jesus, when he was 12 years old, he shows up at a temple. He starts talking with the, the, the different scholars and teachers and rabbis there. And his parents lose him, which is kind of a bad thing. Don't lose your 12 year old. When they go back to the temple, they find him. And yeah, yeah I got to imagine Mary's hot, you know, pretty hacked off, mad at him, ready to give him a whooping. And Jesus looks at him with this like, duh, didn't you know I'd be here? I'm about my father's business. And that's his reply to them. Like, didn't you know I'm going to be 12 years old? I realize that I have got gifts, talents, and abilities. I'm about my father's business. Now, I don't know what that is for you, but you need to be about your father's business. Now, you can do that in a number of different places, but make it about your father's business. And then when he died on the cross, you know what Jesus said? It is finished. That's how you bookend your life, isn't it? You bookend your life by saying, in the beginning, I'm going to start out, I'm going to do my father's business. And at the end of my life, I'm going to say, I did it. I've run the race. I've finished the course. It is finished. I took all the talents and abilities and spiritual gifts and, and the intellect and the, the, the work. At, I, I did it all. Number three is this. This is an interesting one. Number three is this to grow my character. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this is Ecclesiastes is fascinating. He says, you spend your life working, laboring, and what do you have to show for it? I'm going to tell you what you have to show for it. You have your character to show for it. Like, do you know that God is constantly working on your character? That your, your job is a test of your character, isn't it? Like just to see if you show up on time. It's a test of character to see if you'll do your job to the utmost of your ability. It's a test of character to see how, how well, what kind of attitude, how will you treat other people? Will you operate with integrity? Will you operate with honesty? Here's what character is. Character is the ability to do what is right. No matter what the circumstances. And see, listen, listen to these scriptures here. Now listen to the end. Matthew chapter five, verse 21 says this. Well done, you good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. You see that? So like this is this is a test. 
This is the job interview right here. What you're doing on planet Earth, how you manage your time, how you manage your job, how you manage your finances. It's all a test to see how can God reward you in the life to come. And so everything's kind of being measured and calculated and and watched and approved. And that's how we look at this thing. God has put you in opportunities to see what kind of character will she have? What kind of integrity will he have? Because while you're working on your job, know this, God's working on you. He's working on you. The most important thing that you bring home from your job is not your paycheck. It's your character. What are you bringing home? How is God challenging you to be the Christ-like version, the best version of who you are, even on your job? Listen to this, Psalms 105, verse 19. Until the time to fulfill his word, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Now, if you know anything about the life of Joseph, life of Joseph was real simple. He was given a dream of greatness. He went through pure hell on earth to see how he would come out. And then at the end, when he had proven that he was ready, God gave him basically more leverage and more influence than anybody else in the world. He literally, because of his life, saved millions of people. Well, for God to be able to entrust you with that level of influence and that level of responsibility, your character will be tested. Know this is God's always working on you so that you can become the most Christ-like version of of you. Somebody say, all right. Number four is this, is that God's given you a job, a J-O-B, so that you can share your faith. Listen to this in First Thessalonians 4. Take care of your own business and do your own work. If you do, then people who are not believers will respect you. There's a credibility with, with work, isn't there? Like, like we go back to the character issue. There's a credibility thing. I mean, can you imagine being the guy on your job that tells everybody about Jesus, but shows up late Leaves early, watches YouTube videos all day, and takes long lunches. And then you tell everybody about Jesus, you lack what? Yeah, you lack credibility. Nobody wants to care about your message. If you're the, if you're, if you're the weird guy that doesn't do anything right or good on your job, I mean, as, as Christians, when the Bible says that we should do our work as unto the Lord, you know what that means as Christians? We should be and set in the tone and be the example for the best workers in the entire company. And that gives us the credibility than to share our faith. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 5. Your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Another translation says so that we will see your good works. Like whatever it is you're doing is a reflection on who it is that you claim to be your Lord and Savior. So make sure that you've got that credibility on your job. But when you've got that credibility, you know what I want you to do? I want you to share your faith. You're going to be given an opportunity on your job constantly because people talk, right? You might have one of those jobs where you, you work from home or something. You, you got those rare occasions. But most of us, we work around people all day. And you know what you do? You talk. You build friendships. You build relationships. And God's going to give you some unique and divine opportunities to share your faith. And I want you to be ready. Before you, before you get that, you've got to have credibility though, right? But then when God gives you the opportunity, you've got to seize the moment. You've got to seize the moment to go ahead and share your story, to invite somebody to church, to love somebody, to be kind, to be generous, to bless somebody, to help somebody in the name of Christ. And we seize those moments. We have a job to share our faith. Number five and lastly is this. It's to help others. You've got a J-O-B so you can help other people. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 4. The Bible says we must work doing something useful with our own hands that we may have something to share with those in need. 
I don't think it gets any more clear than that. Like, I can't out-preach that. I can't find a better... Like, like, you need to have a job so that when you're done meeting all your needs, that you've got some leftovers. And you know what I want you to do with those leftovers? I want you to be generous. Like, you got your needs met, but there are other people who maybe are falling on hard times or going through difficult situations. Maybe tragedies hit their life. I'm not talking about go out and reward every lazy person. That was. Not, use wisdom, but be generous. Error on the side of generosity. But I want you to go, listen, listen to these words. Acts chapter 20, verse number 35. Paul says this, I have been a constant example of how you can help the poor by working hard and remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. He's like, it's like I'm going to show you how it's done. You work hard and then you remember it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. When all your needs are met, you know why? And here's the deal. I say this all the time. God wants you to be blessed. You know why, though? It's not so that you can get more. There's nothing wrong with you having more. But the reason why God truly wants you to be blessed is so that it can have a spillover effect and be a blessing to others around you. Like God has given. Some of you are brilliant. Some of you are so smart. Some of you are so um, uh financially savvy and you have business savvy and in your ability to wheel and deal. You're a wealth producer. Do you know there's certain people in the Bible that are, have the gift of, of giving? I'll tell you why I think this really, because there's some people just have, have a mind for business and a mind for money and a mind for wealth. And God has given you that ability so that you can be a blessing to those around you. That's why you have more than enough. So with your more than enough, what are you doing? Are you, you ever prayed, ask yourself the simple question, God, you've given me more than I possibly need. What should I do with my leftovers? How can I be a blessing to those around me? Listen to this. The, the end result of everything that we talked about today is this. They all lead to one ultimate purpose, and that's this. It's to build God's kingdom. Isn't that the end result anyway? Many of us, that's why we lack meaning in our work. It's because we have the small picture and we don't have the big picture. We, we, we think about the day-to-day grind. We think about that report that's due. We think about that boss that we don't like. We think about, we think about the mundane. But you know what God really wants you to do? The end result of looking at your life differently and looking at your work differently is this. Is wait a minute. I have an opportunity for most of us, Monday through Friday from 9 to 5, to build God's kingdom. To be credible, to share my faith, to, to earn, to meet my needs, and to hopefully make enough to where I can meet the needs of other people. Like This is bigger than just me. This is bigger than just Monday morning. This is kingdom. This is eternal. I'll prove it to you. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says there's going to come a time of testing at the judgment day to see what kind of work each builder has. Everyone's work. Everybody say everyone. I, I feel like y'all are quiet in here. Is there is that a, is that a, is that a conviction? I don't know what that is. I'll let you figure that out. Everyone's work will be put through the fire to see whether or not it keeps its value. If the work survives the fire, that person will receive a ward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builders themselves will be saved, but like someone escaping a fire. This isn't about heaven and hell, by the way. Like, God loves you. Like, you're in. God loves you. But there's still a day of judgment. And that's not a bad thing. It's a day where God takes an account. says, how did you handle your job? How did you handle your character? How did you handle your finances? How did you handle the opportunities and the responsibility and the influence that I gave you? And all the things that we did in this life, all of our works kind of go through the furnace to see, 
Do they last? Do they measure up or do they kind of wilt away? Do they get burned up real easy? Because whatever we have that's left over, we receive a reward. But everything that gets burned up and is lost, we suffer a great loss. Here's the big thought. It's like, again, you are on an assignment from the Lord. Like you're his, but you're now on his assignment. And his assignment is not just to make sure that you're loved and that you're blessed and that you're going to heaven to make sure the whole world does too. And he wants you to take that into your job. And guess what? Some of you are stay-at-home moms, and, and, and I, I, don't check on on me. You, you've got an incredible job. Like, my wife is a stay-at-home mom with three kids. That is an enormous job. That is a taxing job. That is an incredible job. But what an incredible influence. What an incredible responsibility you've been given. Like, you, you literally are taking care of life. You're passing on from one generation to the next generation the life of Jesus. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's incredible. Take a look at your job today and say, God, what would you have me do differently? What can I go and do? How can, cause see, some of you are going to go look at your job and you're going to think you're, you, as I, I'm there to make money and you're going to be miserable if you do that. Cause you'll probably never make enough and the people around you won't be that great anyway. I don't want you to be a wealth builder. I want you to be a kingdom builder. Do you know that, that we have the highest levels of depression in, in America right now? Higher levels of depression than we ever have. I think it's rooted in this right here. It's rooted in the fact that we spend our lives banging our head against a door. We, we, we spend our lives churning, working, like, like Solomon said, like you work and you labor. You did it for what? If we don't know why we're working, we, we, we lose sight of the meaning of being a kingdom builder in our job. Yeah, we'll become depressed. We'll become cynical. We'll become angry. We'll put in the minimal amount of work just to get by. Do enough just not to get fired. Do enough just to get there long enough to I get my pension. We'll do all those things and we'll have missed the bigger picture. Because see, God wants to do something great in you. And you never know what God does in the little moments. Last story and I'm going to close right here. There's a little moment that happened and took place in this revival. During this revival, there was a, a shoe salesman, which... You know, we don't probably think, ah, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to sell shoes. The meaning, unless you're a foot person, that's possible. Maybe you have a foot thing. I have an anti-foot thing. My wife puts her feet up on me. Get off me. Here's the guy. His name's Edward Kimball, and he's a shoe salesman. He starts going to these prayer meetings. God touches his heart. He realizes that, you know what, I got to, And again, I told you in this revival, the, the conversation became about Jesus and everybody was inviting their co-workers to come to these prayer meetings. And so this guy named Edward Kimball has this buddy named Dwight. And Dwight's another employee at the shoe store. And so he musters up the courage and the boldness to say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? I want to tell you about these prayer meetings. And through his influence, he ends up bringing Dwight to come to this prayer meeting and Dwight gets saved. Dwight goes on to become kind of a big deal of a preacher. His name was actually what we know as D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists in, in, in history. Through his preaching, there's this other guy that gets saved in one of his meetings. His name's Wilbur Chapman. He's a bit of a preacher himself. He has a meeting, and inside of one of his meetings, there's this young baseball player named Billy Sunday who gets saved. Billy leaves baseball to become an evangelist. And in some of his meetings, this, this gentleman named Mordecai Ham gets saved. And then Mordecai becomes a preacher, and, and he starts preaching. And in one of his services, this guy named Billy Graham gets saved. Billy Graham, I think, preached to over, I don't know how many millions of people in his lifetime. See, revival 
is when God sticks his finger into the water and then the ripple effects go out. And you got a shoe salesman who probably didn't think much about his job, but he used his job and he leveraged it for the kingdom of God. In the smallest of moments, and you see God do a revival, stick his finger in the water and the ripple effects go out and you see millions and millions of people hearing the gospel, getting saved because of one small moment in a shoe store. Where do you work at? Who's on your job site? Who can you be praying for? How can you share your story? How can you help your kids and pass on the gospel to the next generation? How is it in your set of cubicles and your factory among your business associates and whatever you do? God's going to give you some divine moments and some unique opportunities. Can you seize the day? It starts with just seeing some meaning in our work, knowing that God has placed us there. Yeah, we, we work to get our needs met, but there's a bigger picture going on here that that I work so that I can have some credibility I have character so that my voice can be heard so that when the right moment presents itself, I can speak words of life, whether that's a simple invitation to church or sharing somebody my story of how God has rescued me. And in those small little moments, God does big things and the ripple effect goes out. Let's pray this morning and ask God. Dear Lord, how is it that we can look at our work differently? Some of us have a job that we do need to probably walk away from. We need to get a different career, get on a different path. Maybe there's a moral tension with our job and we need to find a job that has meaning. For most of us, that's not the case. There's meaning in our work if we'll just pursue it. There's a bigger picture. There's a kingdom goal and a kingdom purpose in our job. We're surrounded by people who don't know you. And we have an opportunity so, so often to love somebody, to bless somebody, to pray for somebody, to invite somebody to church. God, you've given us these unique little small Moments and opportunities, God, let us never despise the small moments. Sometimes the smallest moments are the most crucial moments. God, let us always be aware that sometimes eternity hangs in the balance. And sometimes it's not the eternity for one person. It could be the eternity for hundreds, for thousands. God, we have no idea who we sit next to, who we talk to. We have no idea that that person may be going to be the mother of somebody else and the father of somebody. We don't know where the ripple effect ends. God, you're in control of that. But God, let us take meaning and purpose to our work. Let us remember that that's the world that you've given us. So God, now as followers of you, we will take that into our world. Father, help us. Help us to love the idea of work so that we can bless others, so that we can share our faith, so we can express our gifts and talents, God. Father, I pray that you do a work in us, Lord. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said... Amen. Come on, give me a big hand clap this morning.